All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Galatians. Today we kick off a new series, a nine-part sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Today we're going to do a, a bit of an introduction to the series. We're going to look at the context and get into the first part of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. So Galatians chapter 5, go ahead and put your finger near uh, verse 16. We'll be getting there soon. But first, let's use our imaginations together. That's fun, right? All right, so we'll do a little thing. Um, I want you to imagine, you can close your eyes if it helps. Some of you need to do that. I want you to imagine a Mormon missionary. All right, can you do that? What comes to mind? What do you see when you see in your... We're not making fun of anybody, by the way. I'll let you know if we're doing that. Maybe we'll later. Um, but imagine a Mormon missionary. So what do you see when you see a Mormon missionary in your mind? What do you see? What? Bicycle. Okay, good. Bicycle. What else do we see? What? They're in pairs. They're in pairs. Yep. What do they look like? What are they wearing? White shirt. Short sleeves, tie, they look like they work at like Oberweiss back in the day. They look like, like soda jerks. That's what that's the outfit back in the day. All right, so they got like the black slacks. They got the white shirt, the short sleeve button down black tie. We know what they look like. We, get, we all have the same picture in our heads, right? Not making fun. Like they, we can do this because they have a particular uniform that they wear all over the world. That's their uniform. Now, try to imagine a Baptist missionary or a Presbyterian missionary a Protestant missionary. We, you can't really do it, can you? Because we don't have a particular uniform. You, uh, we, there isn't a particular way to dress. We learned long ago, during, especially during the modern missions movement, that it's important to become a part of the culture, to identify with the people, to embrace the culture wherever we can, right? To be a part of the people so we dress alike. We fit in wherever we can. Christians aren't identifiable by religious garments, are they? We can't even imagine, like, what, is a, what does a Christian look like? Have you ever wondered, what, what does a Christian look like? Because right, before I was a Christian, I knew what Christians looked like. Ned Flanders, that's what Christians look like. They're nerds who are all tucked in, and they have good intentions, they're goody two-shoes, but they're kind of dumb. Like, that was, that was my impression, right? That was the way I conjured up Christians, but there was no reality. To, well, of course, some reality to that. There, there are all kinds of Christians, right? And some of them look like Ned Flanders. But you can't really do that because we don't have a sacred language that we all speak, and we don't have a religious attire that we all agree to wear. We look different in every tribe, tongue, and nation. And yet the Bible still does say that you can identify Christians. You can find them. You can see them. There are marks to a Christian that should be observable. So what are the signs that someone is a Christian. And a question for us to consider that I want us to hold on to throughout our time together here is not just what does a Christian look like, but what does a Christian feel like? How does it feel to be a Christian? Because again, before I was a Christian, I would have told you what I imagined it felt like to be a Christian. And then what happens is, is you actually then become a Christian and you begin to realize it doesn't feel at all like you thought it would. It is something entirely different. And so today, we begin this series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we will be looking at these nine qualities of the true 
Christian life. And in order to see these nine qualities, which are called the fruit of the Spirit, we need to understand this list that Paul gives us in its context. And in context, Paul is giving us uh, two categories in a sense, right? There is this work of the flesh or the sinful nature, which produces all kinds of things. And then there is this work or fruit of the Spirit, right? And, and these two principles are at odds with each other. There is a contrast and a conflict between the work of the flesh, right? This, this, these things that arise from the sinful nature and the work of the Spirit in our lives. So for context, we're going to start with Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here we have the work of the flesh, and it's going to be pitted against the, the fruit and the workings of the spirit. So the work of the flesh are the actions and the attributes that arise or stem from the sinful nature that we all have, that we're all born with. Every human being is made in the image of God, but we also have a sinful nature that we've inherited from our parents. We've inherited it from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. We are all bent in our hearts toward corruption. And so the works of the flesh are the actions and the attributes that stem from that sinful or fallen nature. And these actions and attributes, they lead to spiritual uh, slavery. They lead to uh, spiritual death. They, they lead to the wrath of God coming upon the world. We, we can read this in a number of places in Scripture, but it, just in Colossians 3, 6, there Paul says, it's on account of these things that the wrath of God is coming. So the works of the flesh are the actions and the attributes that stem from this fallen condition and that produces all kinds of immorality and evil. Right? And you can see the range here, right? The range is from rivalries to orgies. That's a pretty big range, right? That's a pretty big range. Rivalry, like, what's so wrong with a rivalry? Right? Well, we're not talking about a sports rivalry. We're talking about jealousy, essentially, right? So, the range is broad, and we have list after list after list of all the ways in which the sinful nature produces these works of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is different. The fruit of the Spirit in verse 22 looks like this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self Control Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, the fruit of the Spirit are the actions and the attributes that are produced by the Holy Spirit. We can, in measure, muster up some level of and some kind of love or joy or peace. But, but these are... 
generated, they are produced, they are created by the Holy Spirit. And yes, they grow from the heart, like they grow in the soil of faith, right? So they do emerge out of a heart that has been regenerated or renewed, right? Uh, a heart that has been born again, to use the language of Jesus. It grows out of that, but it's by the working of the Spirit. And this, this change of heart that leads to good fruit and good works was, was promised in the Old Testament, right? All the way back to Ezekiel 36. We can go back to Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25, where the promise of the new covenant emphasizes this, this acceleration or intensification of the work of the Spirit in the lives of God's people. It says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. There's this promise that when God renews the heart of his people, it produces fruit. And it has always been this way. It has always been this way. Old Testament, New Testament, God renews the heart and it brings about fruit. In the new covenant, right, when Christ comes, it's intensified, it's magnified, it, it, it's, it's bigger than before. But it has always, it has always been this way. You, many of you guys are familiar with Psalm chapter 1. It's one of the early psalms. It's, well, it's the first psalm. But it's one of the early psalms that we, that we tend to learn and memorize as young Christians, right? Psalm 1. And what does it say in verse three? It says that the one who is the believer, the child of God, the one who delights in God's law and meditates on God's law, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. Believers bear good spiritual fruit in their lives. It is a work of the spirit in all Christians. I mean, even... Even uh, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist says, what? Uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? So the first thing that we do, right? We believe in Jesus Christ. We repent of our sins. And John the Baptist says, I want you to bear, you should bear fruit in keeping with it. Like the real repentance bears the fruit of righteousness, or we could say the fruit of the spirit. Or listen to Matthew chapter seven. Jesus speaks to this issue of fruit here. Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the, into the fire. Thus... You will recognize them by their fruits. So everyone bears a kind of fruit, right? And it's the believer that bears a good fruit, a spiritual fruit, identifiable fruit. Listen to John uh, chapter 15 to put a finer point on it. John 15 verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The people of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, bear a spiritual 
kind of fruit. So this fruit, this good fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, right? All of these, this fruit is clearly in contrast to the works of the flesh. And it's not just a contrast, it's an actual combat, right? There is a war that, wages, that is waged. And in fact, let's be clear about this. The most intense spiritual warfare you will ever engage in will be the warfare in and over your own heart. Yes, there is spiritual war that happens in our lives and in our schools and in our culture and in our government. There's all kinds of spiritual warfare, right, where we're taking every thought captive, preaching the gospel. But the most intense spiritual warfare that you will ever engage in will be in your heart and it will be over your heart. It'll be a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Right, right even here in Galatians, the first couple of verses that we looked at, where Paul says in verse 16, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh because the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. That's the fight. That's spiritual warfare. It's over faith and unbelief. It's over righteousness and wickedness. This is the combat. And Paul talks about this fight in Romans chapter 7. Right? In Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21, Paul says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive of the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. That's the fight. That's the battle. And that's why we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. It's why we're here. Why are we going to focus on the fruit of the Spirit? Why aren't we focusing on the, on the former? Why don't we do a whole series on the works of the flesh? Frankly, because y'all are pretty familiar with the works of the flesh. We all are. Because that comes natural. But the fruit of the Spirit, that doesn't come so natural, does it? That comes supernatural. It's a supernatural thing, something that that God does in us and we learn it and we grow in it and we, it, it's becoming who we are, but it's a becoming. So we're going to focus on the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, we're talking about what it means to be Christian, how it feels to be properly Christian. Fruit of the Spirit, it's the result of the Spirit dwelling in us it's also the result of real faith and good doctrine, right? All the things that the Spirit uses, the Word of God, He uses all these things to cultivate and grow in us this fruit. So today, we begin the series by looking at the first part of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Love. And here's the principle. I always give you a principle at the beginning of a message. We had to get through the introduction to get to it here, right? So a long introduction for the first part of this series the principle on love is this. Love is the most deeply felt and most visible quality of the Christian life. At least it's supposed to be. A lot of us act as if this is not the case, and a lot of people will conclude this must not be the case by looking at professing Christians, but love is the most deeply felt and most visible quality of the Christian life. All right, so we're going to support this by... Um, 
looking at love, and we're going to see five truths about love that support this idea, right? So five truths. Here we go. We're, we're finally getting to it. Love. Why is love the, a part of the, the fruit of the Spirit and the first of them all? Well, number one, love is the mark of a true disciple. We've already seen that, right? Jesus said, oh, the love, you, by love you will prove that you are my disciples. In John 13, verses uh, 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the tell. That's how people know. That's how they can see it. How do they see the church? How do they see? Because of our buildings? Can they tell by our cars? Well, I got the fish on there. Yeah, I've seen fishes and middle fingers all throughout my 30 plus years of, of following Jesus. I've seen, I've seen that. It's, the fish doesn't mean anything significant. You got your fish next to your favorite football team, and the, like, it's love, right? It's love. That's what we see. It is the mark of a true disciple. It is the evidence of faith. It is the evidence that you have been born of God. In First John chapter four, uh, verse seven, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. It's, it's the mark of a true disciple, and it's evidence of real faith. Now, what do we mean by love, though? Because everybody has a different meaning for love. You've probably heard, like, well, you know, in, in, in some indigenous languages uh, up north, way up north in, like, Alaska, uh, there are, like, a hundred different words for snow or something like that. I heard it a long time ago. Might not be true, but I've heard it. You might have heard that before. Well, it is sort of true for love, right? In Greek, there are different words that we translate as love, but there are different kinds of love. There's a familial, brotherly kind of love. There is a, uh, a romantic kind of a love. Um, and but this is different. And you may have heard the word before in Greek, right? It's the word agape, right? Agape love. And that word is unique because it isn't really used by anybody until Paul starts using it to describe a unique particular kind of love, a Christian love. And it doesn't mean that it has nothing in common with the other kinds of love. There are overlapping qualities, but it is different. See, this love, this agape love, this Christian love, is a love that is marked by not only joy, right, but also faithfulness. And not only faithfulness, but also sacrifice. It's, it's a kind of love that is delighting in another, demonstrates faithfulness to another to the point of sacrifice for that person. And this love is rooted in God's love for us. Now, that's the this, the shortest way I can summarize this, agape Christian love. And that's the kind of love that we're talking about. Now, why is love the mark of a true disciple? Why is it so important? Why is it lifted for, listed first? Well, we'll see. We're, we're going to get into it here. But I'll just say this in short. Love is a reflection of God in such a way that when we love others and people see that, they're getting a glimpse of God. They're, they're getting a, a glimpse. In, in 1 John 4, 8, we just read 7, right? In 1 John 4, 8, 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So love is part of the fruit of the Spirit because it's a mark of a true disciple. In it, we reflect who God really is. Secondly, love is the summation of the law. It's another reason it's a part of the fruit of the Spirit because it is a summation of the law, a summary of all of God's commands. In Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I love this because Paul's really making this point, right? Almost an overstatement. Owe nothing to anybody. Don't owe anybody anything except if you're going to owe somebody, let it be love. Be a debtor to everyone in love and pay liberally. Give liberally. Give love to everyone that you can. Be a debtor to everyone with this kind of Christian affection, faithfulness, and sacrifice. Because it's the fulfillment of God's laws. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter uh, 22. In Matthew 22, starting in verse 36, someone comes up to Jesus and they say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? There was all kinds of debate back then about which commandment is the greatest. And Jesus says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love is the summary of God's law, of God's will for us. Think about it that way. It's the summary of God's will. God's commands are not abstract rules put together by some like board of angels that said like, well, this is how we want everybody to operate in our community. So we're going to have standards. Everybody's got standards and you go to work. There are certain standards or expectations. They're not moral issues. They're just standards and practices, right? You go to school. Some schools have uniforms. I went to Moody Bible Institute. I went to Moody Bible Institute. Now, I went back like 100 years ago when... Girls had to wear dresses. They could not wear pants to class. Couldn't wear pants. Definitely not jeans, but not pants. They had to wear uh, skirts or dresses to class, to chapel, like, or from Founders Week. The big you had, I had to wear khakis. Ooh, I had to wear khakis and uh, pleated. That, not a good look for me. And, uh, and there were all kinds. Of, there was a rule. Like when I got accepted to Moody, I had long hair, right? And so uh, and the, the earrings, the whole thing. And so I knew that Moody had a rule. You can't have long hair. So I shaved it bald. And then I show up, and they're like, can't do that. Can't have the bald head. And I was like, why not? And they're like, well, it's 1993. You look like a skinhead. And I was like, oh, okay. So I can't have, so then I had to grow hair out. And my hair, if you see me, it looks, when I could grow hair, it looks like a toupee. My hair sits on my head crooked. It, it looks like it's slipping off my head. It's not a good look. So they had rules. Well, they had rules. And they weren't moral rules. Like, you know, you couldn't go to the movies. You could, they were just rules that they had, standards and practices. God's laws, God's commands are not like that. They're not arbitrary. They're not done by committee. God's laws are not given to control, not given to inspire a sense of fear. God's ways are pathways of love. They they are gifts to us. Love Love is a summation of the law because we're dealing with motive and action, right? And so think about it like this. This helps me. How is love a a summation of the law? Love God and love your neighbor. Because love for God moves us to submit to him for his glory. 
and love for neighbor moves us to submit to one another for their good, right? We submit to God for his glory because he is worthy. We submit to one another, not because you're worthy, but because it's, it's, it's for your good, it's for your benefit. This love we learn from God. He extends kindness to us, not because we're worthy, but because we're needy. So love is the summation of the law, is command. So that's why love is here, fruit of the spirit. It's the mark of the true disciple. It's the summation of the law. Number three, love is selfless service, or to use one word, love is sacrifice, right? It's not just emotion, right? You could say it's emotion plus devotion. It's, a, it's, it's not just affection. It is affection, but it's also faithfulness and sacrifice. It is selfless service. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You've probably heard that before. I love that verse. And we're going to go where that's ultimately leading us here at the end. But for now, get it, right? There is no greater love than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. Sacrifice. Love lays down self. Love denies self on behalf of and for the good of someone else. Love is, love is willing to be hurt. Now, I, listen, I want to be very clear. Love does not mean that you should accept or tolerate abuse. No, because love also protects and love defends. But love is willing to be hurt, meaning when you love someone, right, you are sacrificing, you are serving, you are opening up yourself to them, you are offering yourself to them, right? In, in any kind of relationship, in any community of faith where we love each other, right, we are making ourselves vulnerable to another person, and that means that they have now the capacity to hurt us, right? In any relationship where there's love, in any community of faith where there is love, when you, when you are genuinely opening up to someone, you can get hurt. And so you know what happens when you open yourself up to other sinners. You get got, right? You get hurt. That's, it, it comes with it. Now, it's not a good thing, but it's just, it is reality. If you and I are friends and we know each other for any period of time, eventually I'm going to at least hurt your feelings, right? It's going to happen. Or you'll hurt mine, right? And what, what we're supposed to do in the community of faith is, is when we do hurt one another, because we're all so vulnerable, we're supposed to repent and seek forgiveness, and we're supposed to forgive and be reconciled and get better. But love is willing to sacrifice self for someone else's good. We're willing to get hurt in big ways and in small ways. And so let's please, like, and this goes for everybody, right? This goes for everybody. But especially, I'm just, I'm just going to say, especially for husbands, no one's impressed that you would take a bullet for your wife or your family when you won't take a break from your hobbies to talk to your family, right? Because <laughs> I know we all, a, lot of us, a lot of us talk about, well, I would die for such and such. Okay, the likelihood of that ever being on the table is zero. But what is on the table is somebody that you say you love needs your help, and they're too afraid to ask. Love means I'm going to deny myself in my own time to help them. I'm going to offer. I'm going to give. 
Somebody just needs to be listened to and heard. Love means I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to give them attention. I'm going to listen. Love is a selfless service. It's for them. It doesn't, you don't take yourself into consideration in these matters. Love is selfless sacrifice. We learn this ultimately in Christ, and we're going to get there. Just hang tight. So love is the mark of a true disciple. It's the summation of the law. It's selfless service or sacrifice. Number four, love is the fountainhead of all other graces. It's the fountainhead of all the other parts of this fruit of the Spirit. It all begins with, it stems from love. We're going to go to first, in fact, go ahead. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. This should be the, one of the passages that you spend a lot of time on this week. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. We're going to skip the first three verses. We're going to come back to it in a minute. I'm going to start in verse 4. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Consider this. Why love is listed first, why love and how love is the fountainhead of all other graces. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we all know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now... Faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Everything comes from it. There are no other graces without love. You cannot separate them out, and you certainly cannot remove love at all from this list of graces, of gospel graces, gifts that come into the life of faith. It's the fountainhead. Moody says it like this. So D.L. Moody, I I said earlier that some of us went to Moody Bible Institute, and D.L. Moody was this renegade. He's a rebellious guy, right? Big guy, big beard, um, Chicago, uh, inner city. Gave a lot of attention to preaching the gospel to kids, especially the poor. So like a lot of churches weren't like, they're like, how's that going to help us, right? So Moody had a heart for others, truly loved the people. And, um, And I came across a quote from Moody on this particular passage. And he explained that love is listed first and everything else is connected to love like this. He said something like this. Love is listed first and then you have joy, right? And he says joy is love exalting. And peace is love in repose. And patience is love on trial. And kindness is love in society. And goodness is love in action. Faithfulness is love on the battlefield. Gentleness is love at school. And self-control is love in training. It's all love being worked out by faith through the operations of the Holy Spirit in very practical ways. 
It is the fountainhead of all graces. If, this is why Paul says, if you don't have love, you have nothing, right? We'll go back to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. This is why love is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's why it is listed first. It is the fountainhead of all graces. I said there were five truths, right? The fifth truth here, and it's really, we're concluding with it, but it's the starting truth, is that love must be experienced before it can be learned and lived. Love is first experienced before you can even understand it, much less do it. Here's what I mean. In um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John says, we love because he first loved us. You see, um, this series is not merely a call to action for us to act more Christianly. And I'm, I'm not here, like my message is certainly not for you to muster up more love for people. Good luck with that. I can muster up some love for people that I like. I can muster up some love for people that are cool and chill. But for people that I don't like, people that um, I would consider enemies, people that want to hurt me, uh, I... I cannot muster up love for them. I want to crush them naturally. That's my natural response. So I'm not here calling you, and Scripture isn't calling you to simply muster up love. First, we're called to receive love, to receive God's love. What does it say in Romans 5.8? God demonstrates his love for us. So just note, God has an eternal love for us for sinners like you and me. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has an eternal love, not just for us, but for us as sinners, for the unworthy, for the undeserving, for the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually wasteful, the spiritually rebellious, God loves us and we cannot properly understand or learn or live love until we experience God's divine love for us where he has true affection, where he delights in us and demonstrates faithfulness to us and sacrifice for us when we don't deserve it. We learn it in him. So it's his first call to receive it. This is the gospel, guys. This is the good news. The good news is not repent and be better. The good news is God's love for sinners. That's the good news. And yes, he calls us to repent, to drop our sins and to turn and to embrace this. But what are we embracing? God's love. 
his eternal, unfettered, unending love. That's the good news. And if it's, if it's good news for us, we learn love. If you, if, when you experience this truth that God loves you, undeserving you, it changes you. You know, even if you haven't worked it out yet, you know experientially it's hard to receive love when you know you don't deserve it. It's uncomfortable, right? It's like, ooh. You know, I, listen, I don't like help. <laughs> I don't like, I don't want the bellhop helping me. I'm like, I got it. It's not because of the tip. I'm not cheap. I just don't, I don't need any help. I'm strong enough. Look at me. I got my little arms. Like, I don't want anybody to help me. I just want to do it myself. And when you, when you recognize, I don't deserve kindness in the situation, I don't deserve mercy, I don't deserve affection, and then somebody gives it to you, it feels awkward. And we don't like it. A lot of us, we don't, we're like, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, right? When you experience God's love for unworthy you, it changes you because it changes how you see God and it changes how you see other people. It changes how you see yourself. You are loved, like genuinely, truly, forever loved in a way that, that cannot be broken. It's not like anything we would experience on this earth. You are loved and so you learn love and you are enabled to love and you are empowered to love liberally. Like we can actually become lovers of other people, right? We can give and give and give and never run out because we have this reservoir of divine love that we're constantly experiencing ourselves. So the encouragement, the exhortation is, uh, is not for you to love harder, more intensely. It's to first receive God's love. If you're not a Christian... I mean, you probably have preconceived ideas about what it means to be a Christian. I certainly did. I thought you all were nuts and annoying until I got to know you. And I found out, well, you're not nuts. <laughs> Some of you are annoying, right? Any community of faith is going to have that. But I found out that, like, no, there's a, there is a change of heart in people that is real, and it's connected to God's love. I wanted so, I marveled that people loved God, and it wasn't a burden. I began to see, before I was a Christian, wow, being Christian isn't about conforming to expectations and rules. It's about, wow, they've, they've experienced God's love, and they love God in return, and they delight to do these things, and it, it captivated me. If you are not a Christian, my encouragement to you is to consider your unworthiness, that you are a sinner like me, and do not deserve God's kindness or forgiveness, and yet he gives it to you. He offers it to you freely in Jesus. Look to Jesus and believe in him and accept that love, and you will be forever changed. And for those of you who have experienced this love, I would encourage you to cultivate love. Cultivate it. How do you cultivate love? By drawing near to the, the source, by knowing Christ more deeply, by maintaining communion with him. By, of course, there's, there's trial and trying. There is, there is practice and learning, and all of that goes into love, but it's coming, it's coming from a place of dependency and joy because God has loved us, and so now we love him, and that enables us and empowers us 
to love each other and not just each other in this room, but people in the world that are different from us, that are opposite of us, that even hate us. And it's the fruit of the spirit like love that gives them a glimpse. The God that we believe in is real. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would uh, help us to become the people you've called us to be, the people you've created us to be, that the fruit of the Spirit would grow in each of our hearts and lives and in this community together. God, we, we want to be like you. We want to look like Jesus. We want to be identifiable, not by how we dress, but by how we live. Help us, Lord, to grow in love for your glory, for the good of others. In Jesus' name. Amen.